Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Let's jump in, shall we? Luke chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's jump into the, to our, continue our series of Luke that we kicked off a couple weeks ago. So here's a question I want us to wrestle with this morning, and I'll try, to, I'll try to bring our attention to this. It's so important, so important as you read the Bible to understand the context and understand the Bible is not written to you. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. It's not written to you. It was written, this letter of Luke was written to a particular person for a particular time, and it's so important as we understand the context to understand what is happening at that time and to ask ourselves, why did the writer write what he did. So even as we read Luke chapter 1 this morning and look at how Luke starts his narrative, he could have started his narrative many different ways. Why did he start it? Why did he begin the way he begins? Let's wrestle with that as we jump in this morning. But to understand kind of, again, where we are, um, he's writing here and he's going to tell us about this narrative about this Jesus that that has come and, and calls himself King of the Jews. And if you remember the origins of the Jewish faith, it starts with Abraham, and God comes to Abraham and says, hey, you're going to have a child, and you will, this child will have a child, and that will turn into this people group, and out of this people group will come this Savior, this rescuer that will come and fix creation. That's the promise. And so we followed, and if you were here in the fall, we followed this nation of Israel, right? We took them from Abraham, and then they were slaves in Egypt, and then they get delivered out of Egypt, and they have this time of wandering through the desert. And then from the desert, they go into the promised land, and they become conquerors. And they conquer this promised land. Then they have this time of the judges where they're up and down and up and down, and it goes bad, and it goes good. And it's just, it's just these cycles of, of them kind of walking away from God and God sending a nation to judge them. And then it turns around, and then under King David, he kind of unites us in this great kingdom where now they are in the top. And it looks like everything's going great, but the problem is David has a son, and his son creates a civil war that divides the kingdom, right? The northern kingdom goes, and eventually they get scattered and disappear because they get conquered um, by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah survives. However, a few years later, they get conquered by Babylon, and they're taken off to Babylon. Many of the important people are taken to Babylon. They're captives in Babylon in the exile. Eventually... The king of Babylon allows some Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, and they're given these final instructions that, hey, the Messiah will be coming soon, and then God is silent for 400 years. So when we come onto this story where we're going to jump in from the book of Luke, they've had no word from God, no prophets for 400 years, no miracles for 400 years. No signs for 400 years. All they have is a promise that God will send the Savior. And they're told to believe that promise and wait. And that's where they are. They're waiting. They're occupied once again by this nation, Rome, that is ruthless. And they're crying out to God for this rescuer. They're waiting. The other thing you have to know to understand the context of Jesus and when he's going to come on and what's, what's happening. You guys, have you read the Gospels? Heard of the Pharisees? Anyone heard of them? They're the religious leaders. And if you'll notice, 
That's the, that's the people that Jesus is always going to clash with. And here's why. They are very zealous people. And we have to understand this about the Israelites in this day, that all this is going to happen, is they are serious about their faith. Because just like us, persecution comes. We're like, God, we need you. That's what's happened again. Rome is terrible to live un underneath their oppression. And so they, they are crying out to God. But here's the problem, is their zeal is misplaced, or their zeal is without knowledge. One of the scariest things is to have zeal without knowledge. They are passionate, they are zealous, but they were off track. And they become very zealous about, here are all the rules that we have to follow. And if we follow those rules, we will be right with God, which allowed the Pharisees, the best rule followers, to look down on all the other people that don't follow the rules. So there's this time of, uh, of zeal where they're serious about God, and this is where Luke is going to start his story. And we're introduced to a couple of faithful Jews who are those people that are eagerly anticipating the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Like any historian, historian Luke's going to begin by setting the context. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So Luke identifies the time period where historians now can know exactly what he's talking about, and he says there's this king named Herod. Now, this can be confusing because if you remember when Jesus is um, on trial and executed, what's the king of the Jews? What's his name? That's a question. Herod, right? Two different people. This is Herod the Great. The other Herod we'll find later is the son of Herod the Great. Okay, this is king of Judea. His name is Herod. And, and, and so this can also be confusing. It's like, wait a second, wait a second. I thought Rome was in charge. Why do we have this Jewish king? Well, here's how Rome operated. Is they would allow, so in all their, their, their area that they controlled, they would allow these nations to have their own kings that would kind of rule in this land under the authority of the Rome uh, of Rome, right? And they did that to kind of pacify the people where they could say, hey, look, you have your own ruler. You have your own nation. We're the nice, good Romans. We're just here to keep everything calm. You have your own people. That's why there's a king named Herod. Now, Herod is very popular among the Jews. He, he lowered taxes. Everyone, always, everyone likes that, right? Lowered taxes. Very popular there. He even, one time, there's a famine in Israel. And, and the people are dying. So he melts down gold from his, from his palace. The king, melting down gold to be able to feed his people. The people loved him. There's even a, a group of people called the Herodians that were this like, that was this like, go Herod party. Jesus will come into contact with them a little bit in the story too. So he's this really popular king, but he also has a ruthless side. I'll give you an example. Um, he, gets, he, gets, uh, he gets scared one time. He gets, gets worried that his wife is conspiring against him to, to kick him out of power. So he has his wife, her brother, her mother, and some of his own children executed just to make sure there's no rebellion. Okay? So the guy's ruthless. And this is the Herod that we're introduced to. If you remember, and I think in Matthew's account, he tells us that when, G, when, when Herod finds out that there's this baby that's born, that they're calling king of the Jews, Herod orders all of the young males to be killed. 
The guy's ruthless when you try to mess with his power. Well, this is the king that's in charge. And Jesus, or I'm sorry, Matthew kind of introduces his narrative to make sure we understand what's going on. And then he's going to jump, and what Luke's going to do, he's going to talk about two different births of two different children and to help us understand the situation and what was going on with those births. Again, let's ask the question, why? Why would Luke start a narrative about Jesus with the birth or the events around the birth first of a guy named John? Why is this so important? Let's see if we can figure it out. Verse 6. And they, that's Zachariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so he introduces this guy named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. And we learn a few things about these people. The first thing we learn is what the Bible says, they were both righteous before God. Now, we, gotta, we have to stop here and understand this because this is taken out of context so much. When we read this, they were righteous before God, probably automatically think, man, they are the top of the moral code. Like, they get it all right. Like, they are people that have followed God. To That's not right. That's, that's incorrect. The way we could read that is they were counted righteous before God. Walking blamelessly. blamelessly. Why? Why would God be able to say, why would the writer be able to say they were righteous and walking blameless? Because it's not like they didn't sin. As a matter of fact, he's going to not believe God whenever God gives him a message. The why is, by faith, they believe in the promises of God, so therefore they are counted righteous. One of the biggest misconceptions of Christianity. You are now not counted righteous by God because of your good morality. That would be a good time to be like, amen, man, preach it. Thank you. You just had a 10 minutes to the sermon because you know. You're not. You're not counted righteous because of what you do. You're counted righteous by faith. The same in the Old Testament. Again, we get confused with the Old Testament. We see all these rules and sacrifices. It's like, man, God was like a ruled person there. And then he switched in the New Testament to grace. Not true. They were counted righteous by faith. Here's what Genesis says about Abraham in chapter 15, verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abraham, and said, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why was Abraham declared righteous? He believed. Why was Zechariah counted righteous? He believed. He believed in the promises of God. Now it says they believed and they were walking blamelessly. Here's what that means. Again, not that they didn't sin, but they were out of their faith living in response to that. We call that repentance. So the fruit of faith, the result of true faith is repentance. Now again, we're in the Midwest in the Bible where everyone's a Christian. And when they would say, well, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, I said a prayer on Isaiah. Okay, great. Great. I came to church, wonderful. That's not what makes you Christian. What? Faith. Believing Jesus is who he says he is, and he died on the cross for your sins. And then the fruit of that, the result of that is repentance or following Christ. If you're not following Christ, 
and there's not this posture of repentance, posture of Jesus is in charge of my life, then probably there's not true faith. So we're introduced to Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're called righteous. They believe God. They're, follow, they're trying to live out this, 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 the, the, the commands that God has given them. And we learn something else about Elizabeth, that she is barren. Now, it's important here, and I think Luke's trying to teach us something, that he says first they were righteous before God and blameless, and then he adds that they, she was barren. Why is that important? Because in that culture, in that day, to see a woman that was unable to conceive, you would have automatically thought, okay, she did something wrong. That's what the belief was. She did something wrong. God's punishment for her was that now she cannot conceive and bear a child. And Luke is trying to show us, no, no, no. She's kind of righteous. She just happens to be a woman that cannot conceive. We see the th same thing in John chapter 9. Jesus is passing by and his disciples see a blind man. And they ask him in verse 2 of chapter 9, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The belief is if you are blind, lame, Unable to conceive, then you did something wrong, and now God is punishing you. Luke is blowing that argument out. Of course, Jesus will do that too. So Luke is showing us that these are faithful people who believe God, and that God is prepared for a purpose. And it's with this couple, with their doubts, you're going to see Zachariah, he's going to doubt, with their insecurities, there's no doubt that Elizabeth walked around with an insecurity that she was not like most of the women. With their fears, it's with this couple that God is going to break 400 years of silence. Verse 8. So Zechariah, now he was, he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So a couple times a day, they would burn incense. That's what the priests would do, and they would kind of randomly choose a priest that would do that, and it happened to be his turn. Verse 10. When the whole multitude of the people were praying outside, okay, if you take notes or write, I want you to circle that whole, whole multitude. That's going to come. It's going to be important. There's a, there's a reason Luke wrote that. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, because there's not supposed to be one there. But the angel said to him, by the way, when it says angel, don't think like, like angel wings and all that. Touched by an angel, that's, I know that's back in like 2000s or something, but just think a dude. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Those words were the for, first words for 400 years. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son that you shall call his name John. Now remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. The Bible didn't tell us how old. It just says they were advanced in years, which is the same thing that was said about Abraham, who was like close to 100 years old. So here's what we know is that she is beyond childbearing years. Verse 14, and you will have, so he will, she will bear a son, and his name will be John. Okay, nothing out of the ordinary yet, except for she's old. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay, so again, we read that. It's like, okay, great. An angel told him he's going to have a son and then just kind of goes on this rant for a while. Well, in that rant are all kinds of clues that there's no doubt Zechariah in hearing this would have picked up on because he knew and was waiting on these promises that the Old Testament had said were going to come. And here's some things the angel tells him if you look back on what we read. You will have joy and gladness at the birth of this son. Many will rejoice. He will be great. He will turn many to the Lord. He will go before someone. And he will be like Elijah. Now, in hearing this, Zechariah would have been like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Repeat what you just said. Because Zechariah knew the promises of God, and he was waiting on the promises of God. And if we look at the kind of the last promise that Israel were left with 400 years before, you're going to see that what the angel said were clues that this, what's happening is that promise. Hold your place there. Turn to Malachi chapter 4, the end of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, we looked at this at the very end of our, of our series, Redemption Through History, and it gives us clues on what the angel is saying to Zechariah and why Luke thought this was so important that he needed to put this at the beginning of his narrative about Jesus. Here's what Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the prophet says. But for you who fear my name... The son of righteousness, that's the Messiah, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves. There's that joy analogy from the stalls. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, look at verse 5. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with the decree of utter destruction. Do you see the similarity between Malachi's promise and what the angel just told Zechariah? There's going to be joy and gladness. This, new, this person will come that will be like Elijah and he will come before this great Messiah, and, this, and he will turn the hearts of the people so that they're ready for this Messiah. That's what the angel just told Zechariah, and there's no doubt that Zechariah had Malachi chapter 4 going through his mind as he's hearing this. Because the promise from the Old Testament was that before the Messiah come, there would be someone that would precede him, a messenger right before he would come, and that's what they were waiting on. And the angel just told Zechariah, your son will be that messenger. Now, verse 18 through 25, we don't have time to get into it. Here's what happened. Zechariah, who is blameless, 
right, who's counted righteous, doesn't believe the angel. He's like, wait a second, wait a second, my, how? Like, my, my wife is, is advanced in years, I'm advanced in years, how's this going to happen? No, I don't know if this can happen. Because of that, God strikes him where he can't speak, and he's not going to be able to speak for the rest of the time until his son is born. Because of his disobedience, because he didn't believe. Now again, why did Luke add that, and why did I tell you a, a while ago to circle that there was a large crowd? Because those are witnesses. And Luke is not just writing a fairy tale. He is a historian who says, I've got to find the sources. I've got to find witnesses before I write what I write. And if you remember, I told you Luke is a skeptic. When he was deciding whether or not to follow Jesus, he had to wrestle through these things. And he had to say, okay, is this the Jesus? Is this the Messiah? And is this the messenger that was promised in the Old Testament? And we'll get to this a little bit. He did his research, and he says, there was a large crowd, and so there's a large crowd. Zechariah comes out. He's in shock because he just saw a dude behind there. There's one supposed to be there. Told him he's going to have a son. He can't speak, and there's a crowd to witness it. Once again, Luke's write the, Luke writes this. This is in circulation. If that were not true, there would have been many from that town that would have said, wait a second, wait a second. No, nope, that's not true. No one claims that. And Luke wants to make sure that we know that there are witnesses that saw this. So Luke starts his narrative with the promise or with the, with the circumstances around this birth of a guy named John, who you'll know as John the Baptist, who is this promised pre-person before the Messiah. And now Luke is going to jump to another Details around another birth, and this is the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, now, a lot of details in this passage, and again, why did Luke write it? He wrote all these details for a reason. Let's unpack this. So he says... In the sixth month, an angel came to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is just this little small place. It's a dot on a map. How many of you, how many of you grew up in a town that was like one flashing light? That was me. Yeah, a few of us. That's Nazareth. It's a place of no significance, not on any major trade routes. It's not on a major highway where people go through. It's just this little random town. By the way, I wonder if God is trying to send a message here. Mary wasn't the elite growing up in privilege in the center of society. No, some little small town of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, later on when Jesus shows up, they'll say, could something good come from Nazareth? So he said, in this place named Nazareth, we're introduced to this virgin named Mary, this girl. And she's engaged to a guy named Joseph. Now, let's understand this. In Jewish life, there are two stages to marriage. Okay, and here are the stages. The first stage was about a year, and it was called engagement or betrothed, or be, the period of betrothal. And that was a year. And so here's what happened. is The father of the bride and the father of the groom would make an agreement that their children would be married. I'm still in favor of that, by the way, if anyone's asking. Right? Uh, they would make an agreement that their children would be married, and then from, that, from the time that they made that agreement, those children are legally 
engaged. But that's a legal binding agreement, meaning if they're going to break that, they have to get a divorce. Not they can just decide, oh, we don't want to be married anymore. During that year, the, the, the groom was expected to go quit playing video games and build a house and get a job so that he could support his wife. And that's the time period that this angel appears to Mary. Now, Mary, because of the customs and what we know about Mary, was probably around the ages of 13 to 15. So don't think woman. Think young teenager, 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, somewhere in there. So we're introduced to her, and Mary was this common girl from a common place. And he tells us something else that's important. There's a reason Luke writes everything. He says she's engaged to this guy named Joseph, who is of the house of David. That's King David. So we're introduced to Mary. She has a fiancé named Joseph. And why is this important about Joseph? And why is it important that his house is from the, he's from the family line of David? Good question. Jeremiah prophesied this. Here's what he said. Behold, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's the Messiah. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And his days, in the days of Judah, will be saved. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So the promise from Jeremiah was that this Messiah would come from the family line of David. Luke wants you to know that Joseph is from the family line of David. So when Joseph adopts Jesus, Jesus is now from the lineage of David. That's why Luke put that. Because again, Luke's not going to follow this guy named Jesus randomly. He's going to do his research. He's going to say, does this match up? to what was promised about the Messiah. And according to Jeremiah, it does. Side note, when you read that Jeremiah 23, <coughs> excuse me, verse 5 and 6, do you see why the Jews rejected Jesus? Like, look at some of the wording. He will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. He shall execute justice. Judah will be saved and dwell securely. Do you see why their idea of the Messiah was a king that would come and kill all the Romans? That's why they reject Jesus. They didn't understand that God was talking in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. But the Jews are waiting on this first person, this messenger is going to come. And then they're waiting on this great king that will rise up from the ranks of King David. That's what we're waiting on. Luke wants us to make sure we understand that as we read this. Verse 28 of Luke, chapter 1. <clears throat> and the angel came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now again, let's make sure we understand this. He tells her, 
Greetings, favored one. And, I, and you'll see, I believe three different times, the angel referred to her as favored one. Again, this brings up the question, did God look out to try to find the most righteous young woman he could find and say, okay, there's Mary? No. Why did God choose Mary? Grace. Mary is simply a small town girl who believed the promises of God and is trying to live that out, but she is flawed just like everyone else. There's a great danger in exalting Mary as this perfect one and that somehow that Mary even exists now to kind of uh, go between, between men and God. We don't see that in the, in the New Testament. We don't even see that in the first few centuries of the church. That's something that came later. It's called, she's called favored one because she's a recipient of God's grace. There's nothing that puts her above other women. She was a sinner in need of the death that her born son will one day die on her behalf. And so this angel says that she's going to conceive and bear a son. Verse 32, he will be, he will be great will be called the Son of the Most High. That's what, that's what Jeremiah said. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. And so again, Luke's writing this. He wants us to see. So we started with the John. And John, it's like, okay, there's the, you're gonna, you and Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to come together the old-fashioned way. And you're going to have a baby named John. It's miraculous because she's beyond childbearing years, but you're going to have a baby and he will be the messenger. But these words are totally different when it comes to Mary. Because it's not like, hey, you and Joseph are going to get together and you're going to have a son and he's going to be great. No, the wording is he will be the son of the most high. He's different. And here's what Luke wants us to understand, and really he's going to not give us any room to understand otherwise, is that Jesus is the same nature as God. That Jesus is God. That he will have David's throne and he'll rule forever and his kingdom will not end. Remember I told you two weeks ago, we have to decide what to do with Jesus. Either he is the son of God or he is a nut job. But there's no in between. You see how Luke doesn't give you the chance to go in between. He wants you to know the claim is Jesus is God, and you got to either believe that or reject it. But either way, there's huge implications. So if it is God and you believe in, like, okay, there's some implications there, and we might want to do what he says. If he's not God, then don't believe him, don't read him, don't try to do anything he says because he's crazy. You have to decide what to do with Jesus. One of the primary truths the Bible will tell us over and over and over again is Jesus was God. He's not just a good, hippie, moral teacher. In John chapter, we're going to jump to John chapter 19, the second one there. John chapter 19, verse 6, this is Jesus, uh, his trial. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Like he didn't do anything that Pilate's like, Okay, we deserve to, he deserves to die. But the Jews answered him, We have a law, 
And according to that law, he ought to die. Why? What was the law? Because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid. Why did Jesus get killed? Because he went around and he healed blind people and spoke good words and said, love everyone? No. Why did he get killed? He claimed to be God. That's why he died. And the Jews said, he's not God. He's not the one was promised. He's not anyone like we thought. And we reject the, the, that he's God. So therefore, he deserves to die. You must decide what to do with Jesus. He's either God or he's not. There's no in between. But whatever you do with it, Jesus was killed for claiming he was God. That's why he died. Verse 34 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? So we, we learn something else about Mary. And that's a good question. Like it's a good question Mary just asked. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. So notice that. She goes, how, how will this work? I'm a virgin. I, I've never been with a man. Joseph and I have never been together. And he says, okay, here's how the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, will take over you. Therefore, and that therefore is important, because the Holy Spirit will take over you and not because you are with a man, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. And so Luke, another thing, Luke the physician wants us to know and understand is Mary was a virgin. Now why is this important? Well, on one hand, it tells us that, that God is behind this. There's something miraculous that's, that's happened here. That's on one hand. But here's the second thing that we have to understand why the virgin birth is so important. If Mary and Joseph would have got together and had Jesus, even after they were married, Jesus will be born just like we are born, which Ephesians 2 tells us we are born dead in our sins. But because Mary and Joseph did not get together, Jesus does not have the seed of Joseph or the seed of Adam of that rebellion. And so that's why Luke wants you to know that the angel said he will be called holy from the time he was born, not he will be called a sinner. Because if Jesus is born from the seed of Adam, he is born like you and I, he's going to sin, therefore he deserves God's wrath, therefore his death means nothing for you and I, it's simply for him. This is why the virgin birth is so important. You reject that, you reject the idea that Jesus is God. Because he comes from that line, he's, he's tainted with sin, just like you and I. Parents of one-year-olds and two-year-olds, you don't have to teach them how to sin, do, do they? Like it just comes natural. Why? They're born with this rebellious spirit. And we find that Mary believes and she says, let it be, as you've been said. Which again, we could skip over, but let's think about this for a second. This is Mary, a real girl, a real little teenage girl, just been told that she's going to have a baby outside of wedlock, outside of marriage. 
Now, again, in our day, it's like, okay, she probably should have waited, but, you know, no big deal. And that day, she, if she, well, her being pregnant before marriage, she has just committed a capital offense. By law, here's what could happen to Mary and did happen to women who got pregnant outside of wedlock. The men in the city would have found out. Maybe even her father would have led the charge. They would have dragged her out into the street in the middle of town, would have told everyone she is sexually immoral. She had sex outside of marriage. She has a baby out of wedlock. They would have dug a hole in the ground, buried her up to about her chest, filled the hole back in. Just her upper body would have been sticking out of the hole, and the men would have taken rocks and threw rocks at her head until she died. That's the fate that could await her by law and was the custom of that day. And for Mary to say, let it be, was this huge act of faith. That's why, and we don't have time for this today, that's why when Joseph finds out, he said he was going to put her away quietly, not let it be known that this happened, because he cared about her. Even though he's hurt that he thought she had messed around on him, he wasn't going to expose her to the world. So Luke starts his gospel with these birth, the narrative around the birth of these two people. Why? What's so important? He's wanting us to see that John was the messenger promised in the Old Testament, and Jesus was this holy one of God, born in this really in this, this uh, way that does ne that never happens of a virgin, because he was the promised Messiah. Okay, now let's pause, because we have skeptics, we have doubters, and Luke knows this. Luke knows there are doubters. Luke's a skeptic. And like any good historian, here's what, here's what a historian's going to ask. Okay, Luke, cite your source. Right? Great. Sound, great storytelling, great story Luke, great, great little fairy tale, and then they live happily ever after. Luke, cite your source. Where did you get this information? Now, it's not by accident that Luke has mentioned the large crowd with Zachariah's birth. Or, I mean, with Zachariah and, that, and the birth of John the Baptist. But here's what I think, and many commentators think that Luke, as a matter of fact, does cite his source. And we find it in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Have you heard it many times? Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Here's what Luke says. But Mary treasured up all these things... And pondered them in her heart. In verse 51, the second part of it says, And his mother, Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, why would Luke say that twice in his narrative about Jesus? Because here's what most people, what we believe, is that Luke got his information from Mary. By this time, Mary, by the time Luke writes his gospel, Mary's like 50s. Luke's traveling with Paul. Paul gets locked up in Caesarea. He's there two years. It's very close to where Nazareth is, where Mary is. Most people believe that during those two years, while, while Luke is trying to do his research, he goes to this village and goes and finds Mary and says, okay, tell me what happened. And he records it from the words of Mary, who had pondered all these things in her heart so that she could then record to Luke. That's why Luke will tell you there was a large crowd that witnessed that. Again, why? 
because Luke goes to this place. He's like, all right, I hear that a long time ago, 30 years ago, this guy named Zachariah went behind. He was a priest, and he came out, and he couldn't speak. And then he had a baby, and they were really old. True or false? And there were some people that were witnesses that said, true. And so Luke, the historian, cites his references. So we have two parents, Mary and her fiancé Joseph, and then Zachariah and Elizabeth, with two divine experiences, and these two parents will have two babies that Luke will tell you and tell us are fulfillments of the promise of God that were made generations before. But Luke wants us to know from the very beginning, before he tells us any of the things Jesus does, before he records stories or miracles or anything like that, he wants us to come to the conclusion that we have to decide, is Jesus the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, or is he a crazy nut job that rose up and caused a rebellion? But we must decide that. But these babies will grow up, and whether you believe who they are or not, they will grow up and they will change the world. Here we are 2,000 years later. And so before Luke continues on his narrative, he wants to draw us to this crisis of belief. Do I believe Jesus of Nazareth is the holy son of God? And if the answer is yes, that has big implications for my life. So what do we do with this? What about us, right? Here's, here's, a, here's maybe the takeaway this morning that I'd like to center us around as we get, kind of get ready for communion this morning. Zechariah is counted righteous by faith because he believed the promises of God. Mary is called favored one. Favored one. Why? Because she has faith in who God is. And then now the response for you and I is simply this. To believe. That's it. The response of the gospel is believe. What do we believe? We believe that God had promised long before time that these things take place, that Jesus was God, that he lived a sinless life, therefore never deserving God's wrath, that when he died on the cross, that was God punishing sin, and that Jesus became that sin, and in turn, he offers to us his righteousness. Okay, how do we get that righteousness? Go to church, read your Bible, pray. No, believe. The response is to believe. And now the fruit or the result of our belief is repentance. So the fruit of faith is repentance. Meaning the the rest of my life, I'm orienting my life around this person named Jesus. But I'm, still, I'm not counted righteous because I orient my life around Jesus and come to church and read my Bible. No, I believe and I'm counted righteous. And therefore now I orient my life, orient my life around Jesus. That's our response. 